Attention, please. Places for top of show. Places for top of show. Hello, and welcome to Twins Talk Theater. We are Cindy and Stacy, and we're talking about theater, backstage life, and all the excitement that the audience doesn't get to see. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Behind the Curtain, a special series of Twins Talk Theater in the Long Beach Playhouse. I'm Sean Gray, the producing artistic director of the Long Beach Playhouse. Cynthia, Stacy, and I are excited to be able to team up to shine a spotlight on some of the talented people that often go unnoticed to an audience. In Behind the Curtain, the twins interview backstage artists, stage managers, designers, and other theater technicians that have helped to create the magic of the shows at the Long Beach Playhouse. They are a wonderful, dynamic, and diverse group of people, and we are proud and excited to highlight their stories and their contributions to one of the oldest continually operating community theaters in California. So enjoy listening, and thank you, Cindy and Stacy, for all the work you do to bring your love of theater to a larger community. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's podcast. This week, we have Spencer Richardson, who's a set designer that I met at the Long Beach Playhouse, and he's also a show set designer at Walt Disney Imagineering, which is super exciting. I love Disney. He's a... Uh, as looking at his webpage, he's a nerd who used to do cosplay and props and things like that, which also is right up my alley. And he has a podcast of his own called The Pods We Cast Along the Way. So welcome to the podcast, Spencer. Yeah, thank you for having me. I've always excited to meet other nerds. Usually if they play yeah. D&D, it always gets brought up. And Cindy's like, why do you always bring that up? I'm like, it's just, I can't help it. <laughs> nerds yeah, are the it, best. You know, it's, it's funny. I, a group of friends and I, uh, I got into playing D&D for the very first time uh, because of all of the lockdown stuff and because of COVID. And it's, it's always been something I've kind of had a passing interest in, but never had a group to play with. So this was a really good opportunity to get into it. So I'm still fairly green to the whole thing but uh it's been a lot of fun i've really enjoyed it see there you go cindy i uh got dnd in anyways uh yeah but the lockdown like the good thing is nobody has a schedule so dnd is really easy to schedule because everyone's like yes please let's do something <laughs> yeah well and with how prolific uh, you know video conferencing and everything has become uh being able to play online has has gotten so much easier thankfully yes. uh, to get together with your group and everything Yep, and you can even have maps on there and move people around and yeah, yeah. It's actually so. it's funny. We were playing in person right before the lockdown, and we had had a couple of sessions. And one of the things we really struggled with was using maps and you know character tokens and all of that stuff. And we found that in playing online, it was a lot easier to to see and to visualize that sort of stuff on screen. So even after all of this craziness is over, I don't know that we would actually go back to playing in person that often, <laughs> just because you know there's so many tools that are available to play online that make it you know really great. <laughs> we had a dry erase board with squares on it and we would move our tokens around and circle things mm -hmm. in colors and yeah <laughs> excellent uh we always get started with the podcast on asking because everybody's story is different how did you get into theater and did you know you wanted to go into set design when you first started or did you kind of had to have a different idea so I guess if I had to go way, way, way back, I, since I was young, I, I think a lot of people who are into film, TV, theater, you know, visual stuff, um, we all grew up watching the same, you know, movies, uh, you know, in the 80s and 90s. And 
uh, I think that inspired a lot of people to get into uh, the art scene. For me specifically, it was, uh, I really like Steven Spielberg movies. Uh, he was a nice. big influence on me as a kid. And when I was really young, I I only kind of knew that there were directors for movies. So I was like, I want to be a, I want to be a movie director. I want to make movies. But I think as I got older, and it, it really kind of clicked with me sort of later in life was I I really liked the visual element of it. I really liked the world building. I really liked the artistic direction of things. Um, and as I sort of started to learn all the different roles that there were in film and TV and, and later in theater, I realized I really wanted to be a set designer is what I really wanted to be, you know, that sort of world building and creating worlds and, you know, creating all that awesome visual stuff. So uh, theater specifically, I got into... I, I kind of got into set design as a fluke. I was a sophomore in high school and I had signed up for a theater elective and it was an acting class. Um, and I don't really remember what motivated me to sign up for it. It just, I remember I got into the class and that specific semester that we started, we were having a, a change in teachers. So the teacher who was supposed to be teaching that class had not shown up yet. And I remember very distinctly in my very first acting class, I was there by myself. I didn't know anybody. And my friend texted me and said, hey, I'm in this stagecraft class and I don't know anybody. Do you want to switch classes and take this class with me? And I was like, yes, because I don't know anybody in this acting class. <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up taking stagecraft uh, my sophomore year and ended up loving it because that's where I learned about set design. Um, like one of our very first assignments was about set design where our teacher said, here's, here's a little short you know, five minute one act, take this home, read it and make a set for it. And I learned that I really kind of had a knack for designing sets. I really enjoyed it. I really liked the element of research that went into it coming up with, you know, all of the, uh, I, I like to kind of think of it as storytelling, uh, through visual narrative. Yes, exactly. Um, where you have to, you know, use those visual cues to flesh out the world around those characters. Um, which sounds, I know, sounds very like hoity-toity and <laughs> sort of a sort of a, a, a more broad description of it. But yeah, I, I really liked the idea of creating all these little, you know, nuances in a in a scene. Um, I think the, the I can't even remember what the name of the the play we read was, but it was about like a guy who was in a diner who was a writer. And just one of the things I thought of was like, oh, he's a writer and he gets frustrated writing his plays. I'll put a waste paper basket tipped over with all his old scripts in it. And that was kind of the first time I had an interaction with the teacher was like, you should do this. Like, that's that's really clever that you came up with, like, that sort of thing. So I was very fortunate in that I had really great uh, theater professors really all throughout my life, but especially in high school, who really kind of encouraged me and nurtured that uh, that skill. Um, so if if they're ever out there listening, uh, <laughs> Jackie McCusick and Robert Richardson, I hope you're both listening to this at some point. Uh, I just hope they know that, you know, I'm really thankful that they kind of gave me that, uh, that encouragement. So I, I went through, uh, the rest of my high school career in stagecraft. I think I actually took two stagecraft classes my senior year because I had the electives space for it. <laughs> so I like, I TA'd for one class and then I was in another class. So I ended up having like a solid, you know, two or three hours of stagecraft, you oh, know, every day, amazing. which was awesome. I, I pretty much lived in that, that theater, you know, towards the end of my senior year. Um, but it was during that time that I found out that Imagineers were a thing. It was on a trip to Disneyland uh, when I was in, uh, I think it was also my sophomore year. So really formative year for me, I guess. Um, <laughs> 
and uh, we we were just you know going around, and I found a book all about uh, the design of the haunted mansion, uh, which is a huge influence on a lot of Imagineers when they're young too, um, because it's such a distinct, unique you know ride in terms of the way that it tries to tell a story, and you know it's it's such a theatrical ride too, and how it does all of its mm-hmm. you know designs and illusions. Ooh, and when so, I learned how the ghosts were made, I was like, really, that seems so simple, but. I didn't know for years. Yeah. yeah. And actually I have a story about that too. If we want to circle back to that later, kind of when we get yes, more yes. into my, my Disney, <laughs> my Disney path. But um, so yeah, I got this book and I still have it. It's in my office up in Glendale right now. It's uh, it's called uh, from the magic kingdom to the movies, uh, the history of the haunted mansion. And it's a great book that does a really cool job. The way that it's structured is it basically starts with the, story of how the haunted mansion was conceived the history of the design process of the attraction and it goes through all of its pre-production and into its production and then in the uh the second part it goes into every single scene it breaks down the ride into all of its distinct segments and talks about you know the design and the story and the characters and all of those things so that's really cool and then in the final segment it goes into how they adapted that attraction for the movies um, so it's it's a really fascinating book and it's great. I I can't recommend it enough to anyone who even has a passing interest in you know theme parks and theme park design uh, because even if you don't want to be an Imagineer, it's it's a really fascinating read about um, a really interesting period in Disney's history of them making attractions, uh, sort of getting into the whole idea of an e-ticket attraction. Did they go into because at Christmas Halloween time they switch over to. Uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, do they have a section about how they did that? Because it's the same ride, but not the same ride. They do. They do. They they go over it briefly, not as much as I had hoped, um, but they do cover how they, in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, Disney had started experimenting with uh, holiday layovers uh, or overlays, holiday overlays uh, for their attractions, um, starting with It's a Small World. And that had seen so much success. That had seen so much success that they said, you know, let's let's do another one. What's another one that we can do? And it kind of goes into the history of how Haunted Mansion Holiday uh, becomes a thing. It's it's very short. It's like a couple of pages, but it's still really interesting. Uh, and I'm thankful that they covered it. Um, when I was a little, little kid, I was scared of like everything, including the Haunted Mansion. And <laughs> I but I really liked the Nightmare Before Christmas as a little kid. And so that was sort of the the bridge to get me like comfortable with rides like that that were kind of scarier to a little kid like me. Um, cause they toned down a lot of the spooky elements and made them a little more cheerful. And that kind of got me, you know, more comfortable with a ride like that. So, um, that also really fueled my fascination with that attraction. My nephews, uh, yeah, don't do scary rides, but they love Nightmare Before Christmas. So they don't mm-hmm. want to go on the ride during the regular year, but at holiday season, they love the ride. Like, yeah. It's the same ride. It's the same movement. It's the same ups and downs. Nope. But it's funny. <laughs> How how changing things like the scenery really do kind of affect how you perceive an attraction like that. When you make the colors brighter and you change out the characters and you kind of tone down the the frightening aspect of it, it really becomes more digestible for someone who's scared of things that are more atypically scary. So, yeah, it's it's great yeah, that they've done that. Nightmare Before Christmas isn't exactly like the happy go lucky movie. Like that it's not that guy who chews on all the cables constantly. I don't remember his name. The but, vampire uh, Teddy. Yeah. yeah. Vampire Teddy. That guy's creepy looking. <laughs> he is. He is. 
but it's like it, i guess it's like safe enough you know um we talked on uh on our show we had a segment uh, during uh the halloween season where we uh had someone uh who does a podcast as a guest uh segment and we were talking about you know when you're when you're a kid how do you um how do you get into horror and i think for a lot of kids disney is actually an early foray into horror because when you watch old disney animation like pinocchio or snow white yes. you know there's a lot of frightening elements in those um and that's that's sort of the secret sauce and i think a lot of early disney stuff uh, is they inject some some terror and fear into those things which makes sense because they're adaptations of old you know eastern european and european fairy tales and and those had a lot of scary elements in them too yeah. So it, it's interesting to see how that's all connected. <laughs> yeah. The last time I went on uh, or watched Pinocchio halfway through, I was like, they let us watch this as a kid? Creepy people right? being like taken away to an island and turned into donkeys and be given cigars and stuff? Like, should we be yeah. watching this? It's but, dark. Yeah, it's very dark. It's uh, dark. Um, but yeah, I, it's it's uh, it's a great ride. It's It's definitely something that influenced me greatly. So when I read that book, I was like, I actually really want to be an Imagineer. I want to do set design for Imagineers because they talk about how very early on in Imagineering, a lot of the first Imagineers were scenic artists and had theater backgrounds. And I was like, oh, cool. Like, well, theater's something I'm into. Maybe I can leverage that into being an Imagineer later in life. So I uh, rounded out uh, high school. I got to actually design one of the shows when I was in high school, which was uh, Little Shop of Horrors, which I think is a favorite for a lot of folks. Uh, that's, <laughs> yep. that's a show that has a dear place in my heart because not only did I get to design it, but I also uh, was in the role of Mushnik um, <laughs> for that show as well. So I, had a, I have a lot of fond memories of that production. Um, so coming out of high school, um, I was very fortunate that I had an idea of what I wanted to do. Um, which I think for a lot of kids coming out of high school and going into college, it's like, okay, what's next? What do I want to do? But I, I kind of knew right away. I was like, I want to keep doing scenic design because I know I want to be an Imagineer someday. And so I uh, went to, uh, I, I really only was looking at one school because my, my high school girlfriend at the time knew of a place up in Ashland, Oregon. And for anyone who has gone to school kind of on the West Coast, probably knows of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, mm -hmm. uh, which is one of the premier Shakespeare festivals on the West Coast. And we had taken several trips up there. In uh, We did sort of an annual trip in high school as part of our theater program and saw a bunch of shows over like a three-day period. And it's, it's just a beautiful small town, really great. Um, but they have a theater program at their college up there. So I decided to apply. Thankfully, I was admitted, uh, my girlfriend and I both. And, um, you know, we, even though we're not together now, I'm really thankful that, you know, she, she had <laughs> kind of done the legwork, so to speak, uh, <laughs> to find that place. Um, so I ended up uh, enrolling in the theater program uh, and went through all four years uh, taking scenic design classes. Uh, got to design Little Shop of Horrors again as my senior thesis, uh, <laughs> which was which was really fun. That was kind of like a homecoming in a sense because I got to to reapproach a show with a lot more experience and know how in scenic design, um, which was great. And uh, I actually kind of uh, based on that book Haunted Mansion uh, from the Magic Kingdom to the movies. I kind of structured my thesis. I asked my you know professor at the time. I was like, Hey, if I write this thesis, I don't want to just do a paper. Can I like do a book? Because for that production, we actually took three semesters to design all of it. We decided we were going to design and build the Audrey Two puppets in house. So oh. I we really kind of started pre production the summer before that school year started. 
Um, with me, I actually took a trip up to a place called uh, California Carnivores. It's a carnivorous plant nursery uh, <laughs> up in Sonoma County and uh, used that as sort of the basis. Took a ton of reference photos and and started to, you know, just do a bunch of sketches of the Audrey 2, um, Audrey 2 puppet. So we worked really closely with the costuming department uh, on that to create the puppet itself. And then once we got into winter uh, and spring was when I really started doing, you know, the heavy, heavy uh, scenic design work for the skid row set and the flower shop and all of that. So that that was a great experience. Um, and coming out of college, I was trying to figure out, you know, that was when I said, you know, I still know what I want to do. I still want to be an Imagineer or a scenic designer, but what's my next step? And I found out that Disney offers uh, something called the Disney College Program, which uh, essentially is a uh, work-study type um, program set up by Disney where you are uh, employed as a cast member in the parks uh, with an opportunity to, you know, work in a position and uh, at the same time take some classes for college credit. Now, the classes, of course, were not as relevant to me because I had already graduated. But what I was trying to do was leverage that uh, position as a cast member into uh, an ongoing employment with the parks in the hopes that I could use it to network. And unfortunately, that role did not work out quite as I had hoped. Um, the if if you try to go and you know you're you say how every journey path through theater is different um it's it's so true for imagineering too i mean you'll you'll talk to some people who have wanted to be an imagineer since they were little kids you'll talk to some people who had no idea what imagineering was and just kind of found out it was a job as they were looking for you know the next thing in the entertainment industry so it's it's really fascinating to talk to all the imagineers now and see what their journey was too um, but it was during that time working at the parks that I kind of got into uh, sort of a rut. I had not done any design work in a little over a year and a half. And I started to look for theater design gigs in uh, the Southern California area. And that's when I found the Long Beach Playhouse. And I think it was on uh, Backstage Jobs or one of those, you know, theater gig websites uh, where they had posted a position for a scenic designer. So I emailed the Playhouse and met with Sean, kind of showed him my my very lean <laughs> portfolio <laughs> at the time. But it must have gone well because he wanted me to come on as a scenic designer uh, for Psycho Beach Party. It was the first show that I ever worked on nice. uh, with the Playhouse. And that was up in the studio. And that, that was a really fun show uh, because I got to really stretch some of my uh, creative, you know, pop art style design muscles with that one. Uh, we got really crazy with... Uh, how uh, sort of abstract but also stylized the set was for that one so that was a really great uh, show to start on with the playhouse i think that one had bamboo right bamboo that was cut in half and on a wall yeah so what we ended up yeah so what we ended up doing for that show is it was a lot of paint work and uh, that's where i met fee for the first time actually because uh, i remember she absolutely knocked my socks off with these amazing, amazing hand done. She took all of the paint elevations that I had done for the show and and just transferred them immaculately to. Isn't she the amazing? Stage. And I'm like, she how is, did you match that color is, so perfectly? I don't know. She is an absolute wizard um, with what she does. I she never ceases to amaze me with with how awesome her skills are, just in so many capacities at the Playhouse. Um, but I'm so good to tell show. her this because I keep being like, "Fee, you got to paint more." We have four paintings of fees in our house right now. And I'm like, I need oh, more. <laughs> it, it was amazing. Cause I had done this. Uh, it was, it was 
this sort of sand colored floor with a sand dune, but I took sort of this warped kind of psychedelic 60s type checkerboard pattern and it was like dark brown and light brown and I handed it to her kind of with this like sheepish look on my face like I'm really sorry that this is what we're going with and then we had you know <laughs> these really stylized like pop art style cresting waves like flanking the proscenium and these tiki's that were um you know palm leaves and tiki's and things that were sort of um uh stylized and painted on almost kind of like uh the when polynesian pop art was really popular in the 50s and 60s it was that sort of style we had done uh -huh. those bamboo frames around them and then the middle itself was a projection surface and we ended up doing a rear projection onto it so we could change the backdrop for all of the uh scene changes that we did um and I think anyone who's worked on a show with me in the Playhouse knows that if if I'm working on that show, chances are I'm going to leverage that projector in some capacity because I think <laughs> more shows than not, I have used that projector for that same gag. Um, so call that what you want. Call it lazy. Call it call it a stylistic choice. Call it a signature choice. <laughs> we definitely have gotten our money's worth out of that thing and all the productions we've used it in. Well, um, it worked out great for Assassins. Jump into another one, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's. It's such a it's become such a standard, even in shows at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, you see um, projections are leveraged so much. Um, and I kind of fall into that camp where, you know, you talk to people in the themed entertainment industry or theme park fans. And I think one of their biggest gripes is everything is screen based nowadays because they think it's it's a cheat. It's an easy way to do something. And I kind of feel like very much like with CGI in film, it's like it's a tool, right? Just like any tool you use in design, it can be effective if it's if it's used correctly. Um, so I think in shows like Psycho Beach Party, where we had, you know, breakneck scene changes, it, that was almost a necessity it was to be able to change between scenes so quickly was using projected backdrops and then sort of a general sort of open style stage with very minimal scenery around it. So the actors could really kind of take up that space and work inside that world. Well, also the playhouse doesn't have much wing space. And by much wing no. space, I mean upstairs, there's like no wing space in the there's, studio. There's, so there's no uh, real set change options besides a table yeah. comes on. Yeah. And it's it's even more dire downstairs because it's it's like an extreme, extreme three-quarter thrust. It's almost like a uh, almost like a fashion runway uh, exactly. downstairs. Um and so it it's funny you mention that because uh, my next show at the Playhouse was uh I believe it was around the world in 80 days uh with uh Greg Cohen. And I, I had so much fun on that show, too, because uh, that's when we really had to come up with. I mean, we thought Psycho Beach Party had a lot of uh, scenic <laughs> changes. Around the World in 80 Days was like, oh, my gosh, it had to be 20 plus different locations. And when we were in pre-production, I remember we met with uh, Greg and we discussed the idea of like, well, what if we come up with something that's kind of like a vehicle, this, this fantastic contraption, almost like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang that like transforms into different things to suit you know the different locations and so what we came up with was like a series of like trunks and then this like locomotion thing on the front that kind of moved but had parts that could go on and off and turned into like an elephant it turned into a train it turned into a boat <laughs> all depending on you know how we arranged these pieces and i i've always loved uh jules verne and the that whole style of design, uh, the steampunk aesthetic, yeah, um, early sci-fi aesthetic, yeah. Um, the Discoveryland in uh, Euro Disney, well, Disneyland Paris now, I guess it's called, but uh, Discoveryland and Mysterious Island at Tokyo Disney Sea um, are 
amazing, amazing uh, interpretations of that style. Um, yeah, they did so the Jules cool. Verne uh, steampunky look over there and just never made it over here to America, right? I've seen pictures yeah. of it over there. Yeah, and it's interesting. Their whole philosophy behind designing that space, I think, was was right on the money, which was it they call it the Tomorrowland problem, which is that tomorrow always arrives. And it's it's a heck of a thing to keep up with, right? Because if technology is always evolving, how do you create a land that you don't have to update constantly but still feels futuristic? It's really hard because our 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 idea of what the future is is always changing. And so for Disneyland Paris, they said, you know, let's take a Let's take the idea of a tomorrow that never was, you know, sort of a retro futuristic idea, and that'll be timeless. So let's pay tribute to Jules Verne, who was also, you know, a famous Parisian, you know, he he is sort of the father of modern science fiction. Um, and so I think that was, a, that was a great choice on their end to sort of go retro futuristic with it and go uh, the Jules Verne route. Um, yeah, because that like, okay, we added cell phones. Yeah, but we have that now. So that's today and not tomorrow yeah yeah exactly it's it's more of the spirit of of perpetual innovation i think that that i think is the inspiring part of that land um and and of course the aesthetics because it was something that never came to fruition as a futuristic look um is also a really cool aesthetic mm-hmm. so yeah what if that's... steam took over and steampunk was more of a thing instead of like gas powered and yeah Exactly, exactly. And so we used a lot of that aesthetic on the Around the World in 80 Days set. And I think my favorite part of that show that we designed was uh, rather than doing just sort of a a backdrop, a projection backdrop, we took um, sort of this like Nautilus inspired viewing window. So we had a proscenium, but it had this opening uh, this window aperture in the middle of it that we used to project all of the scene transitions and backgrounds onto. So it wasn't just a, a, a rectangle. It actually had some character and design to it. And then it actually opened up in the middle to let the the cast come out with different set pieces and things, and they could take them on and off stage. And then on either side, either side of the uh, stage, we had flanked the walls with sort of this Explorers Club uh, visual uh tableau of like masks and artifacts and weapons and paintings and frescoes and all these things so it it was almost like the story of around the world in 80 days was being retold in this explorers club not just you know happening in a real location on stage oh that's a cool idea i didn't get to see that one i walked through the set a couple times when i'd go visit but and i thought the set was gorgeous but i didn't actually get to see that one live damn it that was that was a really fun one yeah, it was great. I, I really enjoyed that one. So I, I at this point, I think I've I've done more shows than I can recall at the Playhouse, which I'm super thankful for. Um, I, I remember thinking the first time I did any work with the Playhouse being so majorly impressed with how professional, you know, the Playhouse is structured and run. I mean, it is probably the best case scenario for anyone who is coming out of a, a out of a an educational environment and into the real world to be able to work with the playhouse is just a treat because they local theater uh because of things like budgets and and location and space can be so hit and miss with how it's run you know i've had friends tell me nightmare stories of local theater programs that they've worked with and the playhouse is like to me like the gold standard of of how right you can do you know local community theater and you know there's a reason they've been around as long as they have is because they run a really super tight ship and i've i've 
made so many wonderful, you know, friends and contacts through the theater department uh, as a result that even as working as an Imagineer now, if, if they ever offer me a chance to design with the Playhouse, I always take them up on it because I just <laughs> enjoy it. I, I enjoy it that much. I really love working, you know, with them and in and, and their system. It's so great. When people are like, oh, it's just a community theater, I'm always like, that's a terrible excuse because the Playhouse does it and they do two stages at a time. They always have a Mm -hmm. new show. Well, not right now in COVID, but there's always a new show opening in three weeks. That means at any given point, there's two shows in rehearsal, two shows on stage and one show in pre-production. And they have a staff of what, like five, including box office and costume. Like, that's it. Full-time staff of like five. So, like, don't give me that it's a community theater thing, because if the Long Beach Playhouse can figure it out, other people can figure it out. Well, and it's such a shame, too, because the divide between professional and local theater is so vast now that it just it, theater it should be for the people. It It is sort of one of the last frontiers of real expressive medium. Uh, so much is so produced. I mean, if you look at how the entertainment landscape has changed in the last five years you know so much has moved to streaming and even streaming now which is sort of becoming you know cable tv 2.0 you've got all of these major studios like netflix and disney and amazon you know they're they're producing things that may not have had a chance on tv but it's still a studio system and i think we're going to start seeing it become much more you know regulated netflix doesn't take it seems like these days doesn't take hardly as many chances on new stuff i remember a few years ago it was like every week there was like some new crazy wacky concept of a show and now that's really sort of subdued as you know streaming becomes the new normal for people to consume media through so in that system i feel like even though it's a little more, you know, loose than cable TV might be. You're still working under a studio and they're probably still going to want to control what you have to say to a degree. Theater is kind of that last vestige of being able to really say what's on your mind. And professional theater outfits like the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, you know, it's great to see how amazing theater can be, but look at how expensive it is to see shows like that. So for people to say that community theater has no value because of its scope or its budget, I think is just totally off base because you need places like the Long Beach Playhouse to show that you can still do amazing, you know, artistic productions and have something to say and not, you know, totally bankrupt a family trying to enrich their lives with with art. Exactly. And it's great that like if if you look at a I know not everyone gets the chance to look at budgets for the Playhouse versus other places. But what they spend on a set is like nothing. It, it really is nothing. In stock. And they have volunteers who are good enough to help in, and work on things. And they have dedicated people willing to do all of this stuff. But yeah, yeah, their set budget, their costume, like the entire budget is just close to nothing compared to what big theaters go with. And I'm like, yeah, but they still can do great work with that. They just, they have talented people who are willing to do it. Amazing, amazing. You know, Larry and Sean, their their technical know-how and ability to pull off a show, you know, in so many different scenarios that have been thrown at them. I know uh, Noises Off was one of the last shows that the Playhouse did before <laughs> all of the lockdown stuff. And, you know, for, for a show that typically requires an entire, you know, rotating stage to show front and back, for them to be able to pull that off, especially in the uh, main stage space, was incredible. Yeah, the proscenium's, I think, only... 12 and a half feet tall so it's it's tiny it's so tiny 
I was talking to Larry about that when he first agreed to it. I was like, why did you agree to this? Do you understand how difficult this is? He's like, yeah, but Sean asked. And I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to be able to do things like, you know, we did uh, Treasure Island was one of the shows that I designed for. And we we pretty much put a whole pirate ship on stage. You know, <laughs> that's, that's crazy for such a small space and with so many limited resources. I, and I've never felt like I've been in a situation where it's like, we can't do this. It's like, let's figure out how we can do this. That that willingness to really step up and meet those design challenges is just, it. it's inspiring to me. <laughs> it totally is inspiring to me. One of the so, things we were talking about, because um, I had Stephen O'Lear on earlier, is, uh, what was the show? Assassins? You did Assassins, mm -hmm. right? I did not do Assassins. Oh, that was uh, somebody, uh, David Scaglione. Mm-hmm. Oh, what was it? Because I had Donnie on too recently. Uh, what did you and Donnie work on? <laughs> Donnie Very and I recently. worked, uh, well, we were going to be doing uh, Angels in America together, um, and that was yeah. put on hold, but we worked on Cabaret. Cabaret, that was it. I was talking to Donnie about the end of Cabaret when he walks through the doors to die at the very, very end. The... Mm -hmm. um, and he was saying that, yeah, his lights were good, but only because your set was really good to work with. And I'm like, yes, collaboration. Because I, I watched that show like three times and I cried every time at that point. Oh, yeah. Cabaret, boy, that that to me was such a, a learning experience in how, just how important, you know, collaboration is. And, you know, I've, I've never, I've, I like to think that I've never lost that understanding of how important collaboration is, especially in theater, but in any sort of artistic medium in general, because uh, I can't remember who said this, but in college, someone pointed out that without, you know, the technical side of theater, sets, lights, uh, sound, then it's just performance art. But without the performers, it's just installation art. So you need both to create that mixture of, you know, live actors on a stage with lights and sound to make it really come to life. And I remember thinking, I, I felt when I was working on Cabaret and I had met with Sean, we talked about, you know, again, it, it, how do we want to represent the world of this play? How do, we, how do we bring this world to life? And one of the early, early things that we decided to stick to was we wanted it to feel like it was actually taking place on stage at the Kit Kat Club. We wanted the audience to feel like almost like they were in a cabaret theater watching this happening uh, in a cabaret setting. And so as a result, you know, we we came up with this set that was very minimalistic. We had, you know, the chase lights that ran around the edge of the proscenium. Uh, Larry and I worked together to kind of come up with uh, making the proscenium a little more stylized to feel like an older sort of World War II era proscenium, uh, you know, back in East Germany. And when we finished the set and everything was painted, I remember thinking to myself, because I think we had watched sort of a technical rehearsal, but lights and things weren't all running yet. And I remember thinking to myself, oh man, I have totally failed Sean as a designer because this set <laughs> reads as the most lazy minimalist set. Like I have totally phoned it in. I am a fraud. What am I doing? <laughs> and then I saw Donnie's lights on it and thinking, oh my God, this has totally transformed this space. This looks so amazing because of the way that Donnie used light to paint everything on that stage. And it it really reinforced to me how important it is to trust in 
your and, and not that I didn't have trust for the other designers, but to 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 trust in the show coming together because of every element of it. Because it's not just the set that's the most important thing. It may be the thing that the audience sees most next to the actors, but sound and lights go so far in transforming a space beyond, you know, what the scenic designer comes up with. And no, no contribution is greater than the sum of its parts, you know? Mm. So it it was such a kind of sigh of relief moment when Donnie threw all of his lights up there. It's like, oh my God, this this is amazing. This looks great. And it actually ended up becoming, you know, one of my favorite sets as as a result because Donnie <laughs> did such amazing work on it. Yeah, that's the thing. Cause I like when I do set design or lighting design or whatever, I have the concepts in my head. But then I'm not focused on the other designs. I'm like, okay, I'm going to give you this practical light. And I'm going to assume you'll turn it on and turn it off at the right intensity whenever you think appropriate. But mm-hmm. yeah, working together on it because then I'll see something and be like, damn, I didn't think about that. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and just talking to your other designers too, you know, you want to make sure that you are delivering them something that can you know, accommodate what they need. You know, if you come up with a barren stage that has this, you know, if you have a show that has this amazing sound stage and soundscape, but you don't give your sound guy anywhere to hide their speakers, you know, that's a problem. So, you know, it, you, you may have a vision for something that's very minimal, but you also have to think about, you know, what do the other, uh, what do the other divisions of work need? You know, uh, if I come up with something that uses a lot of bright and garish colors that reflect light very you know, poorly or very drastically or totally change how an actor is going to look when Donnie throws his lights up there, you know, how, how have I done him any favors? You know, that's why we always got to, you know, talk to one another and, and really kind of understand what those other departments need. Yeah. I love when uh, a set designer would be like, and then we paint the entire set reflective gold. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) Have you talked to the lighting designer? Because that's a very different look. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and sometimes the the scenic designer may have an idea for, you know, oh, I want to do like, I want to do all these neon lights or I want to do, you know, lights that run around the proscenium. And it's like, okay, well, that's not coming out of your scenic budget. That's coming out of your lighting budget. Have you talked to your lighting designer about that? Like you gotta, you gotta keep them informed, you know? Exactly. Um, it's, it's really important, you know, practical lights on stage. Uh, one of the shows I think we uh, did, uh, Sonia, Vanya, Masha, and Spike, um, was uh i did that with uh ryan hollinger and we created it was essentially a sitcom style set where it was totally uh representative it was uh, a full-fledged like entryway uh living room uh uh, sunroom backyard steps up to a second story um that was probably the most uh representational set i think i ever did and also ended up being one of my favorites just because of how real it ended up looking in the end um but we had practical lights you know on stage and practicals are always really difficult to do um more so in shows where you're moving scenes constantly um (laughs) so that's always an important conversation you have to have with your lighting designer is like hey what can we do for like a practical lamp but it's got to come on and off stage you know can we can we achieve that especially since the playhouse doesn't have the kind of budget where like, Oh, let's just put on everything wireless dimmable. And you're like, yeah, no, everything's got cables, <laughs> which have to be taped down. And now we have tripping yep. hazards and stage manager has to call it when they actually push the button. Cause nobody's trusting an actor to actually push the button. Right. Yeah. And yeah. It's a lot of stuff to think about. Well, we especially it, like lamp. <laughs> yeah. Well, especially in a stage to like the main stage where you have audience members that are literally inches away from any set work that you end up 
putting on stage. Um, you know, that's that in itself is a challenging space to design for because you can't create, you know, walls. You can't create, you know, if you want to place furniture in a certain location or you want to you want to suggest that there is a wall or a window somewhere, you have to think about your sight lines, too. You know, that's always uh, an interesting challenge that the Playhouse presents when designing spaces um, is how do you account for things like sight lines? Um, and I'll be the first to admit we have we have definitely done certain shows where I think we've had to kind of just say, you know, it's unfortunate, but there are some seats in this show that aren't going to be optimal views because mm -hmm. of of how we prioritized uh, the set work. Um, but it's definitely something that we have to be cognizant of and we don't want to, you know, pull that card too much either because um, every guest who comes deserves to have a good view of the show. So how do you incorporate that in your set design? How do you work with something like that? Because when you're designing a set, I guess like the old days of designing a set where everybody did it with paper and pencil is kind of mm -hmm. not the way most people do it. Now they do it in 3d versions of things and you can move around, but mm -hmm. the playhouse for people who don't know is a very thrust stage, like Spencer said, and the small proscenium on one end. So some people who are sitting next to the proscenium have to look 30 feet to their right or left to see the other half of the stage. Like it's, very long how do you deal with like you want furniture but furniture can only be so tall so it doesn't block things or the director blocks something and somebody falls off a couch but half the audience can't see that like yeah how do you work with all that i you know i've i think i've worked with greg cohen the most and he has a very good understanding of how to block and choreograph for that space um i'm trying to think uh lend me a tenor I think was the last show I worked on with Greg and we uh, we had a, an interesting sort of situation because it had that long thrust downstage where we had sort of uh, the the stage itself, the, the setting uh, all takes place inside of uh, one hotel room. But that one hotel room has so many doors on and off stage that we ended <laughs> up putting all of them pretty much in that proscenium because that's really where you have the room to do it. Um, but the great thing about theater is that if you block something well enough, you can absolutely suggest that there are entrances and exits on and off that space that may not make complete logical sense, but the audience is willing to suspend their disbelief um, because about halfway down that thrust, we have uh, stage left and right entry and exits um, where the actors can go up into the audience and off stage because they move you know, into the upstage wings from there. But for that stage specifically, I think what we ended up doing was we did sort of a uh, like a six inch high wall that just stopped, but was painted in a way that made it clear that we were we ended up uh, doing a it was about a six inch high wall that was painted on both sides to look like separate rooms. So the audience could see over it and see the action that was happening on the other side. But we we created a visual barrier that suggested that the wall went higher than it was. And then whenever a character had to lean up against the wall, like they were trying to listen through the door, they just leaned up against, you know, empty space, which thanks to the humorous nature of the show sort of added to the comedy, but also helped us pantomime that, you know, there's a wall here. You may not see it, but your brain is willing to fill in the mm. gaps, so to speak. Um, and a lot of it too, is just, uh, just that is, is faking in walls either through painting on the floor or coming up with these like, uh, you know, just sort of short ground walls that suggest that a wall goes higher. Uh, 
I think the first show I ever saw at the Playhouse uh, shortly before I started working there was uh, Death of a Salesman. And they did something similar where they would have furniture blocked sort of on the perimeter of the thrust. So the backs of the furniture was facing the audience so they could still see over it. But it was almost like they were looking in through that wall at the action that was happening on stage. That makes sense. Yeah, because so many set designs, when you think about it, you're like, why do those three doors all on the same plane go to the bedroom, the bathroom, and the front of the house? Like, what, <laughs> yeah. Architecturally, this doesn't make sense, but I guess it works in theater. <laughs> yeah, it's it's all about that suspension of disbelief. Um, I remember uh, one of the last shows I ever saw at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival uh, before I moved to Southern California was, uh, I, I can't even remember the name of the show, but the one thing that stood out to me most was it was a full apartment uh, and their main stage is huge. It's an enormous space. The fly space in it alone is is just insane. And they had multiple levels going on, but no walls between any of the rooms. Because even though it was a proscenium type set and you could have done like a dollhouse type setup where you have walls separating all of this, they decided to go without. Um, so you could see action happening in one room while action was happening in another room. But I remember thinking the entire time there was some sort of like pipe or gutter or drain there was something but it was a huge pipe that came down like in the middle of it all down onto the stage and i could not for the life of me because it was never referenced it was never interacted with i could not figure out what that thing was for and i never got a chance to ask <laughs> you know in any form of q a or forum you know what was the deal with that pipe on that on that set but that that haunts me to this day it's like what was that pipe for <laughs> on that set and so to me, it was kind of another lesson. It was like, if you're going to make a choice like that, make sure that all of your design choices are deliberate or or have some sort of logic in the space. Because it may have just been as simple as it was something they used to mask cables that were feeding the practical lights down on stage. But okay. yeah. if, if you're designing in that sense, wouldn't you want to run it from the floor so it's not obvious? So I don't know. It, it was a choice because everything on stage is deliberate. Everything that the audience sees has a reason for existing for one reason or another they they put those on there for a reason so that was a choice that someone made to have that pipe hanging in the middle of everything and i it it just drives me crazy because i still think about that from time to time <laughs> yeah it's like if you're watching a tv show and they focus in on somebody's shoes and then they go back i'm like okay those shoes are going to be important and then if nothing ever happens i'm like why did we focus on those shoes Yep. Why, why was it important at that moment? Like, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. Set up and pay off. It's, it's like, that's, that's like writing 101. It's like every, it's Chekhov's gun, right? That's, that's what we say uh, all the time, right? If, if you show something on stage, it's got to have a purpose um, yeah. and it's got to be used why? in some way. <laughs> otherwise, yeah. Otherwise, why would you have it? <laughs> And then I'm just, yeah, like you, concerned about it. Why, why did we have to see that? Why did you focus on it? Why was there a spotlight on it? Why was it there? There's, there's something sort of parallel to that idea of the Chekhov's gun that I call the million dollar set piece, um, where, and, and thankfully the playhouse doesn't fall into this trap, but a lot of professional productions that I've seen do this is there's, there always seems to be either because the director wants it or because the scenic designer wants it. There always seems to be this set piece that is super elaborate and super complicated and gets like five minutes of stage time and is never seen again. <laughs> and I think back to a couple of examples. I, I was technical director for uh, Arms and the Man uh, in college. Uh, that was, I think, my junior year. 
Um, or it could have even been, no, it was my senior year. Wow. I did a lot of my senior year <laughs> looking back on it. Cause not only was I scenic designing for little shop, I was TD for that show. Boy, that was an experience. Um, but we ended up doing, um, we ended up doing this, uh, topiary elephant and mind you, this topiary elephant was a full scale elephant, a wow. full sized elephant that rolled on stage that was supposed to look like a topiary. And when you're working, you know, our university had decent budgets. Uh, we we got like several grand for each show to design to, which is pretty generous uh, considering, you know, what other theaters have to work with. And that damn elephant was such a headache because we had to, one, come up with a framework for it. And of course, all of the things in the theater department were mostly figured out by the students with professor guidance. So the students really did do a lot of the legwork on that. That's um, really cool though. Great learning yeah, experience. Yeah, absolutely. They they were so empowering for for their students to be able to really try to do these things. Um, so what we ended up doing was a plywood framework of the elephant itself. And we used chicken wire over that with a muslin wrap over that. And because artificial foliage was so expensive per square foot, we ended up co uh, cooperating with our local downtown theater and we took their leftover popcorn at the end of several of their <laughs> nights. And what we ended up doing was we glued that popcorn to the muslin skin on the elephant and painted it green. So we got the texture of topiary with that material. And it, I think it ended up working. I would say it was about 80% successful. Um, How did you, what but kind the, of glue do you use to hold popcorn on without like smashing or eating away at popcorn? And that was, spray the, paint? that was the hardest part is we, we basically did layers of glue and put the popcorn over it, but you're, you're absolutely right. Well, one of the problems we ran into was the popcorn because it's just a starch started to dissolve under the water base of the glue and the paint. So we had, we had to end up doing several layers of it to give it enough texture. So it didn't just read as muslin <laughs> on one side. Um, so we did it. Um, and it was, it was pretty successful, but it was, it was literally on stage for one scene, this enormous set piece that <laughs> took most of our heartache was on stage for one scene. Um, and, uh, I remember a few years later when I was, uh, when I had moved down to Southern California, uh, my wife and I went to go see, um, it was a production of Hedwig and the Angry Inch, uh, and, they're doing uh, one of their numbers and this huge uh, uh, wigs are a big uh, visual uh, metaphor in that show. And so there's this song, I think it's right before the end of the first act where this huge uh, rack of all of these wigs on shelves and mannequin heads come down. It's, it comes down from the fly space and then the heads bob in time to the music. It was kind of freaky looking and it was a little unsettling, yeah. but um, it, it was this great, really cool looking piece. It was literally for like five minutes of, of stage time. And then it went up and you never saw it again. So to me, like, I'm like, that is wigs, heads, animatronics. Yeah, I was like, that was probably the most expensive thing in the entire production. And you see it for five minutes. And so that's that's what I like to call the million dollar set piece is it's just something. Uh, it's this huge financial boondoggle that gets so little stage presence that it's almost laughable. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I completely know what you mean. And it's those it's I'm like, really? Do we have to? Can we just cut it? <laughs> That's just half the budget. 
it's memorable in in the weirdest sense you know it's also very memorable if the audience remembers i remember those things even to this day uh one because it was borderline traumatic and one because it was just <laughs> such an interesting set piece um <laughs> or you know the, to- the topiary elephant and the the row of wigs that that bobbed in time to the music so <laughs> yeah that's thankfully that is a pitfall that we have not often fallen into at the playhouse if at all that i've seen yeah luckily the- we just we just don't have time for it we don't have time or money sean's or very space. good about saying like yeah we're not doing that yeah or space to store it or people to move it on and off stage yeah no yeah it's it's such a great crash course in being efficient with your productions too um <laughs> and, and the playhouse so often knocks it out of the park yeah because they only have what is it? Uh, like three weeks of pre-production, six weeks of rehearsal, mm-hmm. or five weeks of rehearsal, six weeks of performance, one day I, of I think strike. From from your very first concept meeting to opening night, it's like three months. Yeah, to do an entire show. Sometimes musicals, yeah. sometimes not musicals. Just with everything. with casts upwards of fifteen, you know, yeah. it's it's amazing. They are very efficient. Yeah. At it. Uh, jumping back to Disney for a couple seconds, just because I'm interested in it. Yeah. How did you go from working as a attraction host in the park to an Imagineer? Because now you've reached Imagineering, which is like the top level of <laughs> so many dreams. How did you get to Imagineering? Um, I got very lucky. That's the simplest way I can say it. Um, I, <laughs> right I won't say right that time. I hadn't been, yeah, right? I, I won't say that I hadn't been preparing for it, right? Because I, I like to think that I did put in the work and time, you know, working in the playhouse, keeping those design skills sharp that, you know, when the moment came, I was ready to, to take that shot. So uh, let, we'll, we'll fast forward to 2017. Um, I had uh, been a lead at uh, the Hyperion Theater in Hollywood. I, I closed the Aladdin show and helped open the Frozen show there, which was really cool. Kind of got to be in a theatrical environment uh, while I was working at the parks. I also was there at the Tower of Terror as a bellhop. So I closed Tower of Terror and helped them open uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout, which was the Marvel overlay that they did uh, yep. when they changed the attraction. Luckily, I got to go on that before COVID hit. So I have seen that. Yeah. And, and I love the Tower of Terror, but I do think Guardians was a very successful uh, change up. It's such a fun ride. Um, so I had kind of reached this point in my life where I, you know, Disney wasn't helping pay the bills. Um, I wasn't full-time. I had tried several times to become a full-time cast member. It's very difficult uh, to break that barrier uh, when you're a cast member. And there's sort of a three-year rule where you either you either decide after three years if you're going to make being a Disney cast member a thing and you're going to stay there for a really, really long time or you're going to move on to other things. And because I had not really gotten to where I wanted to get networking wise, uh, I had kind of reached a lot of dead ends in the park. No one really had anything to offer for me. And I said, you know, I I really value everything I had learned at the park. And it's been super valuable even as an Imagineer. All that experience I had as an ops cast member, totally worth it. But I was not getting where I needed to go. And around that time, uh, my mom actually said, hey, I have a friend at work who has a cousin who is an Imagineer. You should reach out to them. And I did. I sent them an email thinking, you know, maybe I'll hear back. Maybe I won't. Um, But I did. And uh, we started emailing back and forth. And he said, you know, I know a a studio that uh, hires people that they... Uh, contract out to projects on Imagineering. So 
let me get you in touch with them. And so I did, and I took uh, some classes with them. I took a course on, uh, it's a design tool called Revit. So it's basically like a, a 3D modeling program slash drawing program. It's kind of like CAD, but kind of works more with 3D. A uh, big tool that uh, show set designers use. And uh, still didn't really hear anything, right? So I had, I, I had taken the courses. I knew the software. I ended up leaving Disney for an interior design job out in, uh, out in LA and they wanted a CAD expert. And this is sort of my cautionary tale to anyone who's listening is, uh, when you apply for a job and you think that you have time to learn a piece of software and you'll learn on the fly, don't do it. Be honest, let them know (laughs) whether or not you know it. So I sold myself on being a CAD uh, person, which I know 2d design. I can draw in Vectorworks. I can draw in Revit. I'm not a CAD person and I'm willing to admit that. And I got fired after a week, you know, I, they, they saw that I wasn't up to what they needed and they let me go and it sucked, but that was a really crucial learning moment for me because it taught me that if you're going to go for something that you need to, you need to have the tools to be able to fulfill the job. There are some times where you're going to have time to, to learn the ins and outs, but if, if you're going to sell yourself on something, make sure that you actually know what you're selling yourself on. Because I have seen several Imagineers come and go for that exact reason, where they sell themselves as, you know, being able to drive this software and they can't. Um, So if you're going to aspire to do something, learn the tools you need before you go out for it, which is why taking those courses and learning Revit was so crucial to sort of my role as an Imagineer. So about a month after I had gotten fired, I found another job in Anaheim. I was working in a production warehouse and I was fitting in, you know, I was working in the shop. I was building things with my hands. I was getting along with the crew. I had just gotten a full-time position in their shop when I got the call from uh, uh, the studio uh, that gave me those courses saying, hey, there's an opening. We'd like to bring you in for an interview with Imagineering. So I went in and I interviewed and they really liked what they saw. And so they decided to hire me as a uh, contract a show set designer for uh, the Avengers Campus project. Um, Ooh, I'm waiting so for I, that I, one. I know, I know. <laughs> I, I can I can talk about that one now because it's been announced. So for the last three years, I was the show set designer for uh, the Spider-Man attraction at Avengers Campus. And it has been just from from start to finish you know, you, you hear everybody say like, oh, it's an amazing experience. It really was such an amazing experience. It was so full of learning opportunities. Um, I, I don't want to jump into, you know, all the nitty gritty details, right? Uh, but it it was so amazing to see how Disney operates, you know, starting a production from start to finish. And uh, this this ties really nicely back into our whole conversation about theater and collaboration because I remember in my interview, um, the guy who hired me and said, you know, you've got a theater background uh, and that's sort of a, a part of DNA that's missing from the Disney equation nowadays. You don't see a lot of people from theater backgrounds. Um, and I thought that was really interesting because in my mind, all these years I had thought Disney would have operated very much like a theater does where you have all of your different divisions of work, you know, sound, lighting, special effects, paint, um, and and truthfully, they do. You know, the way that Disney breaks out all of their different divisions is you've got your sound designers, you've got your set designers and all of that. Um, so it's it's been really interesting to see how Disney collaborates and how Disney has their divisions of work uh, come together and work on a project like that. Um, so like I said, it, it was sort of years in the making, but also just that that moment that 
you know, lightning struck and I got my chance, you know, I made sure that I was was ready to to grab that opportunity. So I chalk a lot of it up to luck, but I do like to think that the preparation and the work that I put in is is why I've been able to stick around to today. And I've had a lot of really great mentorship through various, you know, people that I've worked with, their uh, leads, bosses who have been have been really amazing and awesome in that whole process um, in helping me be the best imagineer that I can be. So it's 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 been fantastic. And I will say for anyone who's listening who may be aspiring um, to to work with imagineering, you know, don't don't let that feeling go because so many opportunities open up in imagineering all the time that you just never know. I mean, the industry is is in such a weird position right now. Um, you know, so much of the entertainment industry has been impacted, not just you know, theme parks, but movie studios and theaters, especially um, theaters can't ha- operate hardly at all because of COVID. How, how are you going to justify putting a bunch of people in a small space next to each other exactly. uh, where actors are projecting and, and speaking loud and, and all of that. Musicians so, are blowing into horns and dancers are sweating everywhere. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's hard, but you just, you gotta, you gotta keep the faith and you gotta think, you know, you got to think the long term is is keep those goals up. Um, get get into things that you know you're good at, right? Uh, research those roles. Uh, think about the things that you know really excite you as an artist. And uh, if you have a knack for something, or even if you want to learn something, it's just practice, 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 right? Because time and experience are what make us experts at things. I don't think anyone's ever you know born an expert at anything. You may have natural gifts for things, but you know, you got to practice that. You got to hone those skills. And I'm so thankful that the Long Beach Playhouse was around to help me keep those skills sharp while I waited for, you know, something to to come along. Um I think it's it's been such a blessing to have the Playhouse around for something like that. And I'm super grateful for it. Yay, me too. Because <laughs> yeah, when I get bored, they're the first people I call. Like, mm-hmm. I got nothing to do. What are you guys doing right now? You need help? <laughs> yeah, well, and you know, sometimes, uh, you know, they say, you know, don't quit your day job, but it's true. Sometimes you have to work a job that may not be giving you everything you need, but it helps keep the lights on while you pursue your other passions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've stayed around the playhouse through five full-time jobs, part-time yeah. jobs all over the place, and I'm still back at the playhouse if they call for any reason or volunteering or whatever just because i'm like oh home yeah exactly it's it's always great because yeah home is a great way to describe it you know it's you you hear so many art collectives say you know we're like a family here and and (laughs) you hear it so often especially in like like, job jobs where you're like "Eh, okay but no the the playhouse i i've never felt unwelcome there every time i come back i i see new faces i see old faces and it it's such a great experience from start to finish um, so any, anyone who's, who's listening to this, you know, I've been so thankful to work with, with all of you throughout the years, and I hope that we get a chance to work together again once all this craziness is over. That's what we're all hoping. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, go back to the crazy schedule we used to instead of all this free time that we don't know what to do with. <laughs> Everybody can pick up a new skill. Go learn Revit. Yep. That's right. Excellent. Go learn Revit, go learn AutoCAD or, or Rhino or SketchUp or any of the, any of those programs. Those are great. If you're into any sort of design, uh, Photoshop, you know, there mm-hmm. now's the time because you've got the time, hopefully. Yeah. I've spent a lot of time in the last couple of months on uh, SketchUp doing 3D renderings of furniture and set pieces because 
because. And I've learned a yeah. lot of new things that I thought were really cool that I just wouldn't have had time to learn because I usually don't have time to just play with things. Yeah, and I'm like, what absolutely. else am I going to do? I might as well learn a new <laughs> plug-in for SketchUp. Great. That's right. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Vince. We're about in an hour, but is there anything you can plug or want to talk about your podcast? How do we find your podcast if people want oh, to sure. hear you talking <laughs> so- more? <laughs> Totally. I mean, oh gosh, I feel like I talk the whole time. <laughs> I'm sorry that I, I dominated the conversation, I feel like. Ah, um, they hear about me for 120-something episodes. It's <laughs> They know more <laughs> enough about me. Yeah, well, if uh, if you want to hear any more of my voice after I just talked for <laughs> ad nauseum, uh, <laughs> my, my friend and I have a podcast. It's called The Pods We Cast Along the Way. We are on iTunes and Spotify and Google Podcasts. Uh, it's a very loose format, uh, sort of just uh, one-on-one discussions about about anything that's on our minds, usually video games or entertainment. We do a lot of uh, talking about movies that we've watched, both new and old, uh, any video games we may have played recently, uh, sort of a well-rounded comedic uh, podcast about pop culture is kind of like how I like to sell it. So yeah, that's on uh, iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, the pods we cast along the way. And uh, after all this is done, uh, we're, we're kind of on our uh, season-end hiatus, but uh, we'd love to have you on the show as well. So I'll have to hit up my buddy and say, Hey, we've got a, we've got a guest lined up in the future. <laughs> if it's nerdy stuff, that's probably my husband because he's the gamer. But, uh, so what, what <laughs> recent games have you guys been playing that? Uh, uh so we've, uh, my buddy and I are big Nintendo fans and, uh, oh, we've excellent. been working our way through the, uh, Donkey Kong country series on the super Nintendo. Oh my God. Do you know how long I played? It's like in the second world, it's the mine carts that you have to like jump appropriately. Oh yeah. The hardest, the hardest first, of the hard. The first time that came out, I'm pretty sure my sister and I and a friend were up for like five hours until like wee hours of the morning on that one level. Oh my you can gosh. Make it yeah. to the middle point and then getting to the end would be so complicated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we've had a lot of fun. I think we actually are scheduled to play some more tonight. We're on number three. So we're, we're getting our way through. <laughs> yeah. My husband's gone through, re gone through a lot of the Final Fantasies, most of the Zeldas. Uh, yeah. He's played them all, but now he's like re going through them so I can watch because I'm terrible at playing. I run off ledges. I don't open worlds. I have no idea where I'm going, but he plays really well. So I just watch him play and get the story. So yeah. I completely understand. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Good to see some old Super Nintendo games out old there. Old school representation. Yeah. Yeah. Just like two or three buttons, not 500 buttons trying to figure things out. Yeah. <laughs> Well, excellent. Uh, yeah, so thank you so much for being on the podcast and Absolutely. best of luck thank in Mario uh, Donkey Kong. That's, you know, yeah. always fun. <laughs> and then hopefully we see you around the Playhouse again soon once everybody gets back to work and we can start yeah. doing things again. Yeah, I really hope so. <sighs> There's some good shows Sean had lined up and now they're just sitting there waiting. Well, that's a good thing, right? They're they're waiting. They're not yeah. totally dead. They're just waiting to go. <laughs> yeah, Exactly too excited about him to let him go we're just gonna push him until we can actually do him <laughs> absolutely well excellent thank you so much vincer this was excellent talking yeah. to you and i'm gonna go yeah. get that book now and read about uh the haunted mansion it's a great read you should definitely check it out from the magic kingdom to movies from the magic kingdom to the movies yeah i believe that's what okay. it's called and they have a couple they've got one on haunted mansion and one on pirates of the caribbean so oh, another um, good one. yeah okay. really good stuff <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good one. You too. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more, visit our website at twinstocktheater.podbean.com.
and subscribe on iTunes or Google Play Music. You can also interact with us on Facebook or Instagram at Twinstock Theater. Title music, Dance Macabre, is provided by Kevin McLeod of IncomTech.com under Creative Commons License 3.0.